Welcome to Carrying Wayward, a supernatural podcast for fans who aren't ready to let go and newcomers to the series who are ready to jump in. I'm Marie Vigourou. And I'm Drew Shulman. In this episode, we're diving into Supernatural Season 4, Episode 2. Are you there, God? It's me, Dean Winchester. Let's get this show on the road. I love the title of this episode. Like, what a weird mouthful of a title. It's a novel. Are you there, God? It's me, Margaret. A 1970 young adult novel by Judy Bloom. It follows a sixth grade girl who's grown up without religious affiliation due to her parents' interfaith marriage. Interesting. Are we ready for our recap this week? Can't we now? Five, four, three, two, one, go. Cold open. Bobby trying to call somebody. It's another hunter. Seems like there's something creepy happening. So she goes all standard hunter mode and is murdered by ghosts. That's really the cold open. We then find out that a bunch of ghosts are showing up and killing hunters. And then the ghosts show up and attack the brothers. But it's all ghosts of people they know and somehow have some responsibility in the fact that they died. And then they fight the ghosts. They stop the ghost. That's kind of the entire episode. It's a lot of just like emotional damage, but like really nothing happens except for the end when Cash shows up and gives a really great speech to uh, Dean full of uh, real Dom energy time. I just want to note that you're saying this completely unprompted. (laughs) I added that. That was like my I looked at my notes. I take notes while I watch and then I see to make sure everything I took a note of is like somewhat referenced in our like document before we record. And that was the only thing I had to go and manually add was like, oh, no, that's major like top energy right there. Would you like to fill us in on the long game for this episode? There's a lot of long game in this episode. I mean, there's a lot of everything in this episode. As much as you say there's nothing that happens, and which I agree, there's actually a lot to unpack. We've treaded this ground before, but it's the episodes where the recaps are stupidly short because the premise is so ghosts show up. Ghost attack brothers. They stop ghosts. Like it's a three sentence description and nothing is lost. Where the meat and the texture is, is the interactions with these ghosts and the interpersonal connection and the emotional drama and the the development of the character that you can't really recap. And that's why we have the long game. First things first, this episode actually brings back three characters. Meg Masters, who was possessed by Meg the Demon throughout season one. She died in Devil's Trap after they exorcised Meg the Demon out of her. And she dies from the wounds that were inflicted on her body while she was possessed. Then there's Ronald Resnick, who died in Night Shifter in season two, and Victor Henriksen. And we're still not over his death. He died in Justin Bellow in season three. We're still reeling from this one. And I don't think it's just the two of us who are still dealing with that death, by the way. There's a lot of people who are still very upset about this. Rightfully so, in my opinion. Speaking of Henriksen, we also find out that there was like a 45-minute of torture, basically, between the moment that Lilith entered the police station and she set off the explosion. That's why, in Supernatural, folks are a little bit weary to trust things that are told and not showed or not proved by the characters who were there, but we'll get back to that. Just kind of wanted to mention it. I felt that was weird because even when we're having that moment with Henriksen when he's talking about the torture, 
I was like replaying in my head. I'm like, no, they literally show the scene of her walking in saying, hey, it's me, Lilith. And then flash of white light cut to explosion. Like I- I'm kind of calling like ghost bullshit, if that's a thing. None of the ghosts actually lied. So I'm willing to say that this is something that actually happened. My point about that is that like, even though you're told something sometimes on Supernatural, doesn't mean that it actually is that thing. It kind of led me down a bit of a path very briefly of like, how much can we believe these ghosts, like things they are saying, like Meg has the whole bit about her sister. It's like it could be true, but it also could just be the ghost trying to further guilt them. I think it's amazing that you think the ghosts are lying. And I'm like, no, it's the show. The show is lying. (laughs) (laughs) You know what? It's probably more likely the show is lying than the ghosts are lying. (laughs) I think it just shows that we're like coming from different places. And I think that that's awesome. While we're on that, I'm going to take out my season 15 dog whistle for a second to point out that Dean actually uses the line, I don't like getting singled out at birthday parties. This means nothing to me, but it makes me hurt inside already. And now I'm going to take out my season 14 dog whistle and I'm going to point out that Meg, the girl, not the demon, is telling Dean what it's like to be possessed. That, you know, she was a prisoner and that she was watching as like demon Meg was murdering people and that there was nothing she could do while she was possessed. Two things. One, these are those moments where you bring something up where I can kind of infer what may or may not happen. Like this to me says we're going to deal with Dean and possession in season 14. And that could go in a lot of ways. I mean, I'm not going to make us like I can make assumptions, but I'm not going to like bet on any of them. But then my second thing is I'm also picturing you with one of those, like, you know, that like chefs have that like roll with all their knives in it. I'm picturing you pulling yours out with your roll with all your whistles in it. Just each each label carved into it with a knife, like one, two, three, each season's dog whistle. (laughs) But what sound would each season make? (laughs) I will put that in the Discord as a prompt. (laughs) Amazing. When he's talking about the mark of the witnesses, Bobby says that whatever rose the souls from death was so powerful that it left a mark or a brand on their souls. Now, just remind me, Drew, what did Dean discover on his body in the last episode? How did that not click sooner? Oh, with a handprint scar on his shoulder from Cass. Damn it. Cass branded his soul. We also find out that the rising of the witnesses is a sign of the apocalypse. And it's also one of the 66 seals that Lilith is breaking, which is eventually going to lead to Lucifer rising, if it's not stopped. We have confirmation that Lucifer is a thing that is like it's almost played off so casually that I'm like, wait. Oh, no, no, you just confirmed Lucifer. Awesome. I'm also pretty sure in that same conversation, Cass also, you know, confirms God exists. From what we know here, Cass definitely believes in God. We know that. I'm still sitting here with the like Lucifer is real. God is likely real. And this just feels very video gamey to me. The idea of like there being 66 challenges that the devils or the demons have to do to like free Lucifer. There's no criticism. It's just very video gamey. So I'm very on board. (laughs) You know, this is something that's existed in storytelling for literally millennia. They're kind of using that as a plot device to kind of make the season advance. Well, I'll be very intrigued to see what the other 65 are and what they do or don't do. Now, the first thing that Dean says to Victor after they say each other's names super intensely, they're like, Victor, Dean. It's just like very intense. So the first thing that Dean says is, I know 
Kind of like he's saying, and again, I'm taking out my season 15 dog whistle. <laughs> I know you don't need to say it. I think I know that line already. Like, I feel like that line's already made it into pop culture enough that I know it. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Moving on. Then near the end, which is the conversation that you really enjoyed, Cass is telling Dean that the first it's the first time in 2000 years that angels are on the Earth. But we we find out later that that's not true because Cass himself was on Earth. I can't remember if it's 100 or a couple hundred years ago. So, again, like, is it something that Cass conveniently just didn't tell Dean or is that something that the show just kind of retconned once they got there? And I would tend again, I would tend to go with the retcon rather than narrative issue that was exactly my question i was going to be like is this going to be one of those like oops we just made a mistake and we're hopefully no one notices or like Cass was secretly on earth and no one knew about it so we had to lie to dean i mean it was before dean even existed so i, I don't know i don't know how you want to go and explain that one so away Cass's timeline <laughs> doesn't matter when dean's on around got it good okay let's keep going <laughs> okay and i just wanted to do a little tiny aside because dean says something about like $5 a gallon apocalypse. And as our listeners know, like we're Canadian, so we have gas prices in liter. As of the evening that we're recording this, the price of gas at my local gas station is about $1.60 per liter. And I found out while writing my notes that a gallon is about 3.78 liters, which means that gas where I live is roughly $6 per gallon. Now I can hear you already say, but Mary, these are Canadian dollars. Uh, yeah, you're right. So if we convert that, that comes to about 476 US dollars per gallon. So in conclusion, according to Dean Winchester's barometer, we're 24 cents away from the apocalypse. Oh, and given the times we currently live in, that is way too real and I hate it. Well, with all of those lovely facts wrapped up and so much information shared, most of which I don't understand, let's get into story time and talk about uh, what these brothers did this week. Just a little tiny reminder, we're doing things a little bit differently this season. So we're going to start by talking about the main choice that each brother is making in the in this episode that's going to guide the outcome of the episode, kind of like a deal at the crossroads. So let's start with Dean, because I feel like this episode, though Sam is it's pretty evenly split between them, but I feel like Dean is a lot more development this time. Well, I mean, his name is in the title. That usually indicates a little bit. Yet Dean is still very unsure. He's kind of in this place of like everything's up in the air. Everything he's believed, everything he like, you know, was confident in is just sort of like gone. Like there's angels. Cool. God exists. Great. Is faith a thing? Is it, like there's just everything's up in the air. It's like the universe just keeps playing the get out of jail free card for him too, or get out of hell card in this case, I guess. And just saving his ass. I mean, like, this is Dean. Dean's the person who saves people. That's what Dean does. Being saved doesn't work for him. It makes him uneasy. He doesn't understand what it means to have someone take care of him. This is so true. Literally, that moment in his life changes a lot for him, I think. And if I can add to that, the first thing that I noticed in this episode about Dean is, like, how hard it was for him to believe that this happened that he was like pulled out of hell by an angel or in his own words, groped. But let's move on from that. As someone with PTSD, what I'm seeing in Dean is survivor's guilt. Like, why me? Why not me? I'm not special. Like all of those kinds of questions, right? So I think that that's 
kind of a hint at the theme that we're going to be looking at today. Dean is just put in an uncomfortable place. He doesn't know how to feel about it. It's not so much a matter of like not being okay with it or being like upset by it. He doesn't know how to react to it because up until this point, no one's ever really taken care of him. It's not that no one's really taken care of him is that no one has ever taken care of him that he can like really remember since his mom died. I mean, I'd argue Bobby a little bit. Yes, yes, that's fair. But I think, again, like, he didn't quite know what to make of that every time that we've seen Bobby care for him anyway. Yes, Bobby clearly did stand in and take over a better parental role in their lives, and we see it now, and I believe we were hinted at it a bit throughout their upbringing. But every time it happens, Dean is equally as surprised. Yes, exactly. He's like, I don't know what to do with this. This is not what I'm used to. There's also like this long interaction between him and Meg, like the girl, Meg, uh, that makes him feel guilty. And like, yes, I think he absolutely does feel guilty because he couldn't save her. But I think that there's like this whole added other layer of her death being the precipitating factor for her little sister to die. And Dean, as we know, feels a lot of responsibility for Sam. And I think that like in this moment, the goal was kind of to show that he feels guilty for for having died and left him alone, you know, how, how ridiculous does that sound? You know, like anyway, but I think he feels, he feels guilty for that, especially with Meg's words basically being like, she was never the same after I disappeared. She just, she just got lost. And I think that that like creates both guilt and doubt in Dean's mind about what happened to Sam when he was in hell. This is kind of where my, doubt comes in with like how truthful the spirits are because it seems way way too like perfect poor wording i know for meg to have this situation where that mirrors dean so identically of like disappearing and being you know out of the picture and leaving a younger sibling to suffer in their place and become worse because of it it's equal parts like perfect like allegory for one to the other of like Oh, demon possessed Meg, took Meg away, sister got worse and eventually took her own life. And then Dean being like, oh, my God, is that what I did to Sam when I left? And again, the guilt of life and everything. It just feels so like too, too perfect, too, too similar almost. Like, I know we argue, I I know there's kind of the, the up in the air of like how much is true, how much is lies, whether that's story related or in universe related, but like. But I think that you have a point, though, if we're looking at this narratively, then like, I think that it's definitely not a stretch to think that the ghosts are lying. The end of the day, I don't think it matters if they're lying. I agree. And I think that that's my 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 wider point that like the goal is to show how the the the, like I was going to say how the characters, but like how our characters are feeling, you know, how our Sam and our Dean are feeling. How our beans are doing. (laughs) Exactly. How our beans doing. And they're not doing well here. (laughs) I know we're going to move into Dean's interaction with Victor, but I feel like the fact that Victor and again, we still have that, like there could be some truth stretching there. It isn't needed. He doesn't need to give the extended elaborate torture happened thing. Dean is already so hurt just seeing him the way like like you said in the long game, just the words I know 
The whole I know made me gasp, frankly, when I heard it, because this was the first, again, like a lot of these episodes, I'm kind of like watching seriously for the first time since the finale. Like I've watched them in the background, like, i.e. not really listened, just kind of having them on, but really watching them, honestly, that moment made me gasp. But anyway, what happens next, though, is that Victor grabs Dean's heart. Victor didn't do that to Sam, but he really, he grabbed Dean's heart, his heart again. And I'm just going to bring that again, bring that up again, because I'm sorry, but that's now part of the lore, part of the story. But that heart was healed by the heart of a gay man in faith and then taken out of hell by Castiel last episode, that heart. Dean has this ability to kind of stall for time and kind of wisecrack. And we see it a lot in Dean is he'll, say something he'll wisecrack he'll he'll lower someone's defenses all to distract them to get to his ultimate goal which usually is to save himself or save somebody but here he doesn't here he goes full-on emotional connection with victor i think that that's really the beautiful thing is that there is no mask the mask that like sometimes bothers me so much and i understand why it's there right like i don't want to minimize that and i understand why for some people, and even for myself at one point, like it was necessary, especially as like a queer person, but like, it's not there in that moment. And I think that that is just so refreshing because there are so few moments in these first seasons where Dean is truly himself. And this is one of those. Yeah. Like the only other time I could see Dean opening up this much and being that emotionally vulnerable to another person was in Justin Bellows with Victor. Okay, we've talked about Dean for too long. I am getting upset. Would you like to talk to us about Sam? I would love to talk about Sam. And I have thoughts about Sam. Do share. He's the first one to be visited by a witness, Henriksen. But it's very brief. And, like, he doesn't really have time to say anything except to, like, listen to Victor air his grievances, right? And then Dean swoops in. And then we have to wait until we're literally, like, three quarters of the episode in to really see some guilt coming from him. And that happens when Meg, the girl, talks about what he's doing with Ruby. That's the part that elicits guilt in him. And that's very unlike Dean and Bobby, who feel guilty about the people they couldn't save. Meg calls him a monster, and he shoots her in the face. This is a byproduct of Sam's whole Chosen One thing. I get the vibe. And this is purely just like a, a, a tingle that his time with Ruby and his time without Dean more specifically has only made that worse for him. That kind of leads to the fact that he doesn't really feel as guilty about these people's deaths as Dean does because he doesn't blame himself. He's the protagonist. He's the main character. They are all bystanders. Yes, it's sad that they died. Yes, it the ultimate thing would have been, I wish they had lived, but they did their role. They didn't make it. There's nothing Sam could have done. We move on with the story. But Sam choosing to do something that does not benefit the greater good and is, I, I, I don't want to use the word greedy because if the relationship with Ruby is an actual relationship beyond just a like Jedi Padawan trainer trainee thing, then by all means, like love is love, love is love. I'm not going to yuck anyone's yum, although I do have major issues with it that we can talk about later. Um, 
this is some like we learned about the way demons work with possession. There's someone in that body that isn't Ruby and she's having to do all these things. Like, that's really icky. Like, I don't want to think about it. Like, let's just TV magic that away, please. I don't think it's relevant. And if we need to talk about it, we will, but let's not. But that, but so I sidetrack here, but he is guilty for his actions and the choices that he has made that don't directly benefit the greater good. Okay, I feel like now you're really getting into what I think is the difference in this episode between Sam and Dean and how they're both approaching that choice, quote unquote, you know, because we're talking about a, a choice at the crossroads, right? In this episode, I think I think we've talked about it enough, but like I think that the 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 episode really is about guilt. And again, the choice, if we can call it that, has to do with the guilt that they're taking on for the people that they couldn't save. Because like, and that's one thing that I find interesting with this episode, like in terms of messaging, you can feel guilty for things that you're indirectly or involuntarily responsible for, which is basically mostly what Dean feels guilty about in this episode. But you can also feel guilty over the things that you deliberately did that you know are wrong, which seems to be Sam's case. Because he, like you said, and I think you said it really well, like he doesn't dwell on Meg or Victor or Ronnie because he knows that the only way to save them would have been to know more than they knew at the time. He's like, you know what? Like this, we couldn't have done anything more with the information we had at the time. And I think, first of all, like that's very grown up kind of way of looking at it. And like seeing as he's not Doctor Strange, they couldn't know. And Sam sees that, whereas Dean doesn't, really. Or if he sees it, then it's not relevant to him. He still feels that guilt for something that he could not control. Sam is, I can't go back and fix it. I know things now that I didn't know then. And because of that, the situation went the way it did. Whereas Dean is, well, I know more now. Had I known this then, I could have saved them. It's my fault for not knowing it. I messed up by not knowing something or not doing something. Mm -hmm. And again, I think we're seeing like survivor's guilt, right? In that moment, because there's no, there's no way that he could have done anything with, again, with the information he had at the time, there was nothing more he could have done. And to just add the icing and the cherry on top of this already terrible cake, he also is risen. He is literally standing here facing three people that he feels guilty for their death. And he gets to be the one alive again. Like, again, the why me mentality, but not even just like a like thinking about it in the back of your mind, literally having to look them in the eye and say, yeah, I'm back because they decided I should be back and you have to be an angry, pissed off ghost. Does that remind you of anything that we've seen before? I feel like you're pointing at something, but it's not hitting me right off the Once again, I have to bring up Faith. When he has to look at Layla at the end of the episode, knowing that he was, quote unquote, chosen and she wasn't. And he gets to go on living and she doesn't. That guilt is there. It's written, it's, the, guilt is weaved into Dean's character the way that like, you know, textiles are woven in together. Oh, poor Dean. My God, the poor boy. 
It's a lot. <laughs> like and like I'm a D like I will side with like the universe. Dean deserves good things. Everyone deserves good things. Just because he got and someone else di didn't doesn't mean you should feel guilty for it. But by that same metric, like give the dude a break. Stop giving him things and then forcing him to rub it in everyone's face. What I would wish for for Dean would be time to heal. <laughs> Okay, so now that we've used the crossroads to kind of like identify and talk about a theme, um, is there anything else in the episode where that theme shows up that we haven't quite discussed yet? I mean, Dean very, very clearly addresses his guilt and his feelings about all this unsureness and craziness in the conversation with Cass that he has at the end of the episode. And it's just, again, like I made the joke, Cass gives off such like a dominant, like, energy I, like, fixed my posture and, like, oh, okay, yeah, uh-huh, I'm, I'm listening, I'm being a good boy, Cass, mm-hmm. Listen, this is literally everybody's reaction to hearing that moment, you know, like... I'm not alone? No, you're not alone at all, and I think Cass is also, like, one of the only people, and we've seen that in the last episode, but who tries to, like, ease that guilt, and you've talked about this a little bit by, you know... By saving him, by telling him that, you know, he deserves good things and that he should have more faith. Given Dean's relationship with his actual father, not his better father, I can understand there being some daddy issues. That had very dad vibes, Cass's speech. Kind of putting him in his place and giving him orders and, uh, mm. Oh yes, I know. I got shivers in that moment. I was like, ooh. <laughs> Let's happily move along to uh, anything else you want to bring up? <laughs> yeah, I want to talk about Bobby for a second. Why do we get nothing? Could you not have given us like a three second scene just explaining who these girls were, when in his timeline this was? Was this like his pre-hunter days? Is he relate? Are they are these his daughters for God's sake? Like, what is the relationship here? I need every detail about these two girls. To me, it doesn't matter. And the reason for that is that Basically, it shows that he feels guilty for not being able to save two kids from a monster. And I feel like that also is like an allegory for <laughs> Sam and Dean that he couldn't save from John. I'll admit, I don't think the episode needs it at all. I just want the more Bobby lore. That is the difference. There's a need versus a want. Um, also... Just because I feel like we'll get flack if I don't say something, how these two girls just basically radiated the shining energy. The second the toy hit the floor, I'm like, we're going to get creepy twins. This is the second time that we get like a really big allusion to the shining in this show already. They're starting to reuse ideas, you know, it begins. <laughs> and when you got a good classic like the shining, I, I, understandable. I'm sure there'll be many things they uh, they call back to more than once. Absolutely. It's going to get mentioned quite a bit in the next 11 seasons. I think with that, we have wrapped up story time. Let's head over to critical time and uh, keep talking. Who were the masterminds behind this episode? I'm going to say it right now. Good episode. I enjoyed it. The writing was great. The cast was great. So whoever did this episode must clearly be a cast fan. So who was it? So this story was written by Sarah Gamble and Lou Bolo with a teleplay by Sarah Gamble. I'm not going to address your comment just because we're not there yet. We know who Sarah Gamble is. Dares into camera. 
I had to really look up Lou Bolo because I didn't know who he was. And it turns out that he was actually the stunt coordinator for the show from 2006 to 2017. Weird transition. Not a bad transition. Good for you flexing your different skill sets. And clearly you really like Cass if you were able to write him the way you did in this episode without uh, someone overshadowing you. When the story, when it says story by, it means that like, it was in part his idea. He, like he probably approached Sarah Gamble or approached Eric Kripke and was like, hey, I have an idea for this, for an episode. Like, what do you think about this? And then like fleshed it out with the, with the writers. And I, I find that really interesting because it really allowed for a moment of introspection for the boys, which doesn't happen all that often. Yeah, this is one of those rare moments where as much as the emotional beats were very, I don't like the word negative, but they weren't like growing points. They were more like sticking points. They did kind of like put like, you know, like uh, strings, like strings and pins on the board in the grand scheme of the emotional damage and distress of these boys. I think it helps us to understand them a lot more, which I mean, usually that happens through like a lot of action and like moving forward. Like it, it just, it's like, go, go, go. But this, this episode in, in the best of ways, because it's going to sound like an insult, but it's really not, it was very stagnant. Like nothing really happens, like you said. There's a lot of internal stuff that happens. Despite the fact they do go to other locations, it has the feeling of a bottle episode. They go to the first hunter's house to find her dead. They go to another hunter's house and find he's redecorated in red, as Bobby puts it. Realistically, like those moments... Who knows how much was actually like they could be the same house for all we know, but really it's Bobby's house and Bobby's bunker. And otherwise it's it's a bottle. And the director, because we didn't mention him yet, is Phil Scritchia. Oh, good old Phil. I feel like Phil's always got a good like soft spot for like painting Dean in like a very positive light. How about you take us into your lore story? Gladly. How did I get here? Wait, where is here? Okay, one thing at a time. Let's retrace our steps. Deep breath. <sighs> okay, I was leaving the bar. Yeah, I had too many drinks. Yes, yes, yes. Um, yeah, enough drinks that I probably shouldn't have been driving. I don't have my keys, so I probably didn't drive. Did I leave them with someone at the bar? Okay, I'm clearly not drunk anymore. I'm feeling very alive and sober right now. So time has definitely passed. Why am I wet? The ground, me, clothes, why is everything wet? Okay, it's not raining. Everything's dry. The streets are dry. Okay, recap. Was drunk, not drunk anymore. Side of the road. Everything's wet, but it's not raining. Wait, is that blood? Fuck, am I bleeding? I don't feel anything. Nothing hurts. Okay, let's just get up, start walking. I can think to myself and walk at the same time conveniently. Oh, that's a lot of blood. It, is that my blood? What the hell? I'm covered in blood. No, that's not my blood. That's his blood. Is that a body in the ditch? Oh, God, is that my body? I open my eyes. Still leaning on the side of my car, key is still in my hand. My hand is shaking. 
I dropped the keys. As I reached down to collect them, very, very slowly, I feel like I could throw up right there. Luckily, I don't. And I don't think it's the alcohol this time. As I steady myself on the door handle to my car to help myself balance as I get up, I spot someone's face in the rearview mirror. I peer over my shoulder to see who's coming over, but there's no one. As Bobby rightfully points out in the Bible, it does contain a mention of the witnesses in the book of Revelations, though there are said to be only two, which is a far shot from 66 or however many number of witnesses there actually were. Uh, and even then, there is some debate whether this is two people or two groups or two factions, kind of unclear. These witnesses would be granted the authority to prophecy, as uh, the Bible dictates, and these witnesses would also have the power to close these skies, turn water into blood, and bring forth every kind of plague as they wish. So, while the Bible's witnesses aren't an army of angry ghosts, I would pick angry ghosts over, you know, every plague ever. We've had an example of what it's like to live in a pandemic. <laughs> angry ghosts over plague. I would take that too. <laughs> And I'm even talking like the biblical plagues, like I'm talking like raining frogs and stuff. I mean, traditionally, those are the big signs of the apocalypse, right? I'm like, I don't want to say words because those words may happen in the show. So I'm like, ah, uh, you know, uh, the signs of the apocalypse and stuff. Like I'm expecting now some of the 10 plagues from, you know, Hebrew tradition showing up. I'm expecting something with the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Like all of those things are like, would not shock me or surprise me to know we're coming. But yeah, I was I was rather surprised when I looked into this for this section that the witnesses are really a far stretch from what they were described as in the Bible. Like I, I like had to recheck a few times to be like, is it really just two witnesses? Like, really? And they they're, they're living people. They're not necessarily ghosts. So a pretty far stretch from the biblically accurate uh, side of things. You know what I feel for the angle they're going for and the fact that we're at least playing with religion that is a little more in their wheelhouse? I'm kind of okay with it. But I don't mind if they borrow from Christianity because for all we know, these boys are Christians, right? Like they, you know, or at the very least culturally Christian, you know? I don't actually have like anything specific with regards to a commentary this week, but I do have a question for you because I am really fascinated with this idea that like Dean feels guilty for things that he can't control and Sam doesn't. So I was kind of wondering, like, how do you feel guilt in your life? Basically, I've reached a point in my life where like I know it sounds very self-helpy, like guidance counselor speech here, but I've gotten really good at like disassociating things that are clearly not on me. Like, I think I I blame retail for this. I feel like I worked in so many environments where I was I was blamed for things that I had no control over. And it has taught me to disconnect from those things like shit can happen. It may come back that I could have helped in some way. But at the end of the day, if I was not given the tools I needed, if somebody else was not there to do their job and it got like, dumped on me and then something didn't go right, I am able to disconnect. And go, you know what? This isn't my problem. Not my monkeys, not my circus. So I kind of have the Sam side of it there. But then the other side is as soon as I really go, oh, no, 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 that's my bad. Oh, do I feel a Dean there? 
When you say, I feel a Dean, do you mean like with the intensity that Dean feels guilt? Is that what it is? Oh, yeah. No, if I, if something really comes down to the point of like, you know what? That is my fault. And there isn't any of this like, well, had I known? No, no, like, no, literally, I did a thing. It had a direct effect and it caused a negative thing in the world to happen. And someone is paying for it now or is hurt because of it. Uh, I'm ruined. When I do something wrong, I'm really sorry. But then I'm like, my first reaction isn't to feel guilty. It's to be like, oh, this is something that I can fix somehow. Right. I can be because like you apologize and then you take action to make it right. And then, you know, then the person can choose to forgive you or not. That's a whole like, but that's on them. Right. Like that's not on me. But when I do something wrong through my behavior, I know that I can fix it and I can become a better person from it. But when it's something that I can't control, I can't fix it. And so like, I, I very much feel like Dean, where I, I tend to feel a lot of guilt for things that I can't control. What we're getting to is we need to sit down with each other and help each other learn how to undo the parts that are negative and emphasize the parts that are positive, because we're basically the exact opposites in our guilt feeling. Yeah, there you go. Exactly. Exactly. I, I like it. Thank you for coming to our guilt TED Talk. <laughs> this was therapy. <laughs> this is therapy. Speaking of talking, do we have any voicemails this week? Absolutely, we do. This week, we have a voicemail from Nell. Hi, Carrying Wayward. It's Nell. Um, pronouns are she, her. I am leaving a voicemail in response to episode 314, um, long distance call. Um, and one specific moment where Marie says, um, where Mary says something about wanting to shake Dean and how that's like sort of taboo to say things like that. Um, and I want to talk about that a little bit because it's true that there is this sort of like thing in fandom about not criticizing their favorite characters. And so sometimes you'll see things that are like, this person is a perfect angel and has never done anything wrong in their whole life. And I know a lot of the time that's like kind of a joke, but I want to talk a little bit about how damaging that is and what a disservice that does to the character because like when we you know love somebody and they do something wrong or something we don't agree with like we should want them to improve and to be constantly getting better and doing better for themselves and for other people and so this narrative of like this person has never done anything wrong like is is a disservice to these characters because we know they're capable of better and I think it should be absolutely warranted to criticize things that characters do. Like, there are lots of things that characters do that I disagree with and that I think are bad choices. And I think it should be fair game to talk about those things. And I think there's, like, this idea, well, like, it's just fiction, it doesn't matter. But fiction has been teaching us things for, like, thousands of years. So, like, you've got Aesop's fables, which tell you you know, which are supposed to be moral life lessons. And so this idea that fiction doesn't matter for the messaging it gives and that what we talk about with fiction doesn't matter is ultimately harmful to us and leads to people who really aren't willing to take accountability for their actions like we've there's this whole sort of like well dean has all this trauma like it's it's not his fault blah blah and it's like that's an explanation it's not an excuse and so i just think that that's something that we should like be talking about more and be willing to say like i love this person and i believe they did something that they should not have done or they did something that was unfair or wrong so i just wanted to hear your thoughts on that um and on that sort of mo that movement of like 
characters are perfect and they can't do anything wrong and it doesn't matter because they're fictional. So I'd love to hear your thoughts. Continuing to love everything you all are doing and I hope to have more to write in about soon. Wow, there's a lot. There's a lot to, do you want to start, Drew? <laughs> oh, why are you feeling too guilty to go first? <laughs> <laughs> no, honestly, you know what? I think it's a really... And again, like I don't listen to the voicemails before we listen to them together, right? So I, I'm always amazed when the theme of a voicemail like comes up in the theme of the episode that we're discussing the voicemail in. And I feel like this is a perfect example where I was just talking about how when I do something wrong, I can fix it. When I behave wrongly or when I say something wrong, I can apologize and I can do better and I can learn from that experience and grow from it and not do it again. And I think that that's what Nell is calling for here. And I think that that's really what accountability is. It's to recognize that you've made a mistake, that you've hurt people, to acknowledge that hurt, to see what it does to people and to not do it again, <laughs> to better yourself into not doing it again. I feel like your voicemail, Nell, kind of brings up a lot of things for me. What I love about fiction is the fact that you can safely interact and have those thoughts, ex thought experiments, right? So it's, you can be mad at a fictional character and it's not going to hurt your relationship with them because they're not real. And in that sense, it's quote unquote, just fiction, right? Your relationship to those characters is a fictional one. So you can be mad at Dean or you can choose to forgive him. You can choose to do whatever you want. Like fiction allows you to model those things. On the other hand, and I also firmly believe that, if you just consume media without really thinking about the messaging that's being sold to you, then you're much more vulnerable to consuming messages that may not align with your values or having those messages skew your values. So again, I'm going to take that line that fiction allows you to kind of decide where you lie in those situations, in those really tough situations where you're just like, I really hate what you did. In real life, how would I approach somebody in my life who did something like that. And you can safely have those thoughts without hurting one of your friends, one of your loved ones, one of your family members or severing that relationship, you know? So I think that that's kind of where I stand. I don't know if that was where you were going, but that's, I think that that's my stance on like fiction and safety and accountability. And I realized that I asked you to go first, but now I went. So uh, how, what about you, Drew? What do you no, think? No, I, I love that how that worked out. I was so happy with that. Um, I think I'm going to first uh, ironically play the apologist card for half a second and say that I believe that Nell will agree with me that both you and I are able to be critical of Sam and Dean and really everyone on the show. And this is, this is one very niche example, but also I, I get it and it does make a great jumping off point. But I fully agree with Nell. It is so important to be able to be critical of a character and that when they do have a character flaw or they do something wrong, being able to accept it so that we as an audience can analyze and learn from it. And I feel like there's just so many TV shows where like there is that level of like, no, no, they could do no wrong. You could explain it away. There's always a way to like 
head cannon, implied cannon, lore, reasoning, things happen off camera. You can't explain, oh, the comic book does it differently. At the end of the day, if you're watching a piece of media, you're consuming a piece of media, whether it be writing, TV, movie, podcast, it's being able to relate to that imperfection in a character. And I'm going to give an example because weirdly, as I listened to this voicemail, the first thing I did when we finished it was what are characters that people do claim are perfect that I could use as an example here and say, well, but yeah, they're not. And I'm like rolling through a Rolodex of like Reddit posts in my head. And then it occurred to me, one of my favorite TV shows has a collection of characters and the main characters more than anybody else who do have very clear and evident flaws that make them who they are. And I don't ever see people trying to explain it away. It's just outright accepted. What's the TV show? It's Adventure Time. Like, we legitimately have characters, like, just to go on a very small arc with Finn, where he gets into a relationship with another character and then realizes that it makes another girl he used to, like, jealous. So he starts playing them against each other and gaslighting them and then ultimately pays the price when they both figure it out and walk away from him, leaving him alone. And there's no, like, he tries to redeem himself and then eventually learns, you can't. You messed up. You broke this relationship with this person. It will never be the same. And that is your fault and her prerogative. And the show is able to move on. We as an audience, Finn as a character, they learn from it. And I mean, it's done in a very child-friendly way because the show is ideally aimed at a younger audience. And I feel like it just takes more work on our part looking at characters like Sam and Dean to do that same thing, to see what Dean does, realize what he did could be, it could be or can be and is wrong, and how we as an audience can learn about him and about ourselves from those moments. Exactly. I think you said it, you said it really well here. How do we learn about ourselves and about others through this character? Because at the end of the day, that's basically what it is, right? The reason why I think anyway, that, or in part at the very least, sometimes, you know, we have characters that we absolutely adore because we see ourselves in them. And it's really hard to acknowledge their flaws because we see ourselves and our flaws are never something that we really want to see. So there's that on the one end of the spectrum. And then on the other end, there's like people who are like, we need to hold characters accountable. And there's a part of me that's like, you can't hold a character accountable. They're fictional. You don't write the story. And so, you know, that's why I'm kind of talking about it's up to us to have that reasoning of like, that's that like that person that character fucked up here and if they were my friend this is what I would do or this is what I would expect of them in order to remain in a relationship with them whether that's a romantic relationship a friendship or even a family relationship so so there you go that's kind of like where I draw the line where like you know, you can't hold Dean Winchester accountable for what he did. What, what are you, where are you going to meet Dean Winchester, right? Like, you can't. <laughs> I mean, I would love to, but I we can't. So there you go. I think what matters is, like, the, the interactions that we see as ourselves and our friends and our loved ones and, you know, learning from those in fiction to apply into reality. And there's, some, there's, there's research that backs that up, actually. Um, but we're not going to get into that right now because we're going way over time. <laughs> yeah, I just want to end this and say now, like, 
what an amazing voicemail like the fact like that we ended where we did now i am so happy that this conversation happened so just a huge thank you yeah seriously thank you so much now drew would you have any reflection and call to action this week i certainly do i feel like we talked about guilt a lot and in a weird way we talked about ourselves and how we handle guilt a lot which really, really well ties into my call to action reflection for this week, because for me, guilt is super, super difficult to deal with. I I mean, it's just it's it's such an easy thing to let not you. And it's so easy to kind of go into that dark self spiral of guilt. And it's really easy for someone to use guilt against you. And I've been in some pretty dark places in life where I was guilted into doing things I didn't want to do or being places I didn't want to be because I felt like I owed it to somebody or it was my I had to do it. So I I won't go into too much detail because it's dark and it's not the place for it. But suffice it to say, someone guilting you or trying to use guilt against you is something to be aware of at the end of the day. Your health, your safety, your mental health, your life is more important than how somebody feels about you. My boss and I have a very like bantery relationship where we will literally banter back and forth all the time. And not too long ago, he was telling me, he's like, oh, let's see if I can guilt you into this. And I I laughed and I said... I have an Italian grandmother. You can't guilt me into anything. And he started laughing and he's like, oh, okay, I give up. (laughs) Like it was just instantly, you know, and I knew that he was never going to do that. You know what I mean? Like this is a very respectful relationship that we have. I agree with you. If somebody is trying to actively guilt you into doing something, then really that's just manipulation. That's not even, that's, yeah, that's manipulation and coercion. My call to action really this week is about examining why I feel guilty. And I think that that's something that came up in our conversation earlier. Like, am I feeling guilty because of something I did because of my behavior? Or am I feeling guilty because of something I can't control? Because I think there's something there that I need to bring into therapy. (laughs) Clearly. (laughs) Drew's like, yep, yep, yep. Nope. But it's a very healthy realization. Yeah. And there you go. This, this was If nothing else, (laughs) this podcast (laughs) episode allowed me to realize that. So thank you, Drew, for sharing that with me. Well, thank you for being so open with me. And thank you for a lovely conversation and making me not feel guilty for thinking that, you know, Cass was such a dom this episode. (laughs) No, I would never make you feel guilty about that. You've been listening to Carrying Wayward, a supernatural podcast produced by Rochelle Castellano, hosted by Marie Vigurou, and myself, Drew Schulman. Thank you to our Bunker patrons, Katira, Michelle, and Elle, for their generous support. This week, we'd like to thank Nell for her message. Help us keep the conversation going. You can send us a three-minute voice recording at carryingwayward at gmail.com. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, and YouTube using at carryingwayward. And leave us a rating and a review on your podcast service of choice. And don't forget to join our Patreon for perks and extra content. You can use the link in all of our social media bios or go directly to patreon.com slash carryingwayward. Carry on our wayward friends. Mwah, mwah.
Yes, I know you're doing I'm so very, well. I'm I love very that. in my head. I'm like, how do I word this so it sounds like a human said it? <laughs> 